part four. Holy heck, we got some big chunks today. And by the way, uh, we got our annual revenue uh, here. Just, just checking it out. Seems, seems that we made $2.8 million uh, last year. So we're grateful for that. And uh, this is a little scatter chart. Actually, this isn't from our church. Someone just gave it to me. I'm just looking at it longingly. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, we're going to be addressing that later, <laughs> but in a different format. All right, let's pray and let's um, sing the Word of God, set to music, sit in silence, come back and get into the Word of God, which is what it's all about. Lord, we love you. We seek you and need you. We uh, pause during our busy weeks. We are so grateful that we live in a place that we can freely gather together in a place uh, talk openly and share ideas and disagree, but walk out of here loving each other. And we just pray that you'll continue to sustain us, help those who are uh, seeking truth, that you'll open them up to the Spirit, help me in the things that I need to grow in, that all my eyes will open, I'll change and grow along with uh, your ways. And so uh, the text is good today, but we just pray it will play a part, a role and everything else we've learned before and everything we will learn hereafter in the book of Revelation. So we seek you, Lord, and we thank you for loving us so much that while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to uh, pay for the sins of the world, not only for uh, the whole world, but especially those who believe, as it says in Timothy. So we love you and thank you for it. Let us be mindful of that sacrifice. And now of the Spirit, in his name, Jesus, amen. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows His handiwork. The heavens declare the glory of God. For those who 
Okay. We uh, left off last week. We have talked about post-millennialism, pre-millennialism, amillennialism, Russell-lennialism, and we are now entering in through our verse-by-verse of full preterist view of the millennium, and uh, which, remember, that Russell-lennialism is a form of preterist millennialism one that makes a lot of sense, like it. And so uh, let's talk about future, full, preterist millennialism relative to Revelation chapter 20. If we can't answer the, the propositions of Revelation chapter 20 with the full preterist uh, views, and it's not reasonable and scriptural, I will walk from full preterism. I'm learning as we go. And uh, at this point, I would be a Russellennialist, which is kind of frightening, but so far he makes the most sense. And I'm not alone in that. That's what R.C. Sproul uh, embraces uh, greatly in his book about eschatology, etc. So, um, for the church in its infancy, it was an actual generation, 40 years of time when God kept Satan back from really roaring and let the apostles establish the kingdom. And there was a great deal of expansion and growth of the kingdom of Christ from the time either that he started his ministry at baptism till about 70 or 67 AD or till about after he started his ministry and resurrected till about 70 A.D., we're looking at that window as the full preterist understanding of the millennium. And remember, all millennialists do not believe in a literal thousand years, which makes up the majority of the Christian church. The only, and even post-millennialists, don't necessarily believe it's an actual literal thousand years. The only ones who do would be those who uh, fall into the dispensational pre-tribs, who say it's an actual 1,000-year period of time. All the rest will are willing to mess around with the time frame. So I'm going to pick it up at this point, and from the day of the church bride growing and began to grow in its infancy, whether that's with Jesus being baptized by John, or it starts when he resurrected. Those three years are up in the air. Um, I'm going to say that the full preterists say this was the millennium. This was the generation of time where the peace reigned on earth for the gospel to grow. Speaking of this expansion, Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world... For a witness unto all nations, it says in the King James, and it means all ethnicities, and then shall the end come. So this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. It's a line that most people today will say, that has not happened we have to get our missionaries out to the far reaches of the Amazon, little nooks and crannies. And until <coughs> that happens, Jesus can't, hasn't returned and won't return. So 
we have to see if it's true. Has the gospel, right off the bat, been preached to the whole world during that short window of time that Jesus was talking about? And uh, some 20 verses later, Jesus says, all of this will happen within a generation. So in verse 14, he says, hey, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached into the whole world, and then the Son of Man will come. And then 20 verses later, he says, and all these things will happen within a 40-year, that's a biblical generation, 40-year period of time. So to a full preterist, it's suggesting that he is saying this is going to happen in that window of time. The gospel will be preached and the full preterist eschatology says it was during that time that peace was present enough for it to get out into the world by the apostles. So, was it preached to the whole world? Well, let's hear what Paul says. I'm, gonna, I'm just using the Bible to interpret the Bible. In uh, Romans 10, 18, he writes, But I say, have you not heard? <coughs> yes, verily. Their sound went to all the earth, their words to the end of the world. Now read it contextually, but he is talking about the sound of the voice going out. It caused him to write in Colossians 1.6, speaking of the gospel and saying, Which is come unto you, as it is in all the world. He writes this here. And brings forth fruit as it does also in you since the day you heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth. And then in the same chapter, Colossians chapter 1, drop to verse 23, Paul says, these are his words, If you continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven, Paul said it in his day, during the window, he said it was preached to every creature which is under heaven, whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So, establishing this, what we really want to know is how do these verses affect Revelation chapter 20 and our interpretation of it? Do they fit the full preterist view of the millennium? All right? So, verse 1. Let's just take one verse at a time. And we're entering into our verse by verse, finally, of 20. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now, verse 1 could happen, we're going to be honest, any time. John could have seen an angel coming down from heaven that was representing someone in Genesis. Because it doesn't tell us anything else except what John sees. An angel coming down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So that verse in and of itself, we get nothing from it in terms of proof or application or whatever. Um, verse 2, and it's a big one. In fact, we're going to spend the rest of our time on verse 2. And he laid... Now we have action given to the angel coming down from heaven with the key and the chain. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent which is the devil and Satan. We have four names there given to Satan. The dragon, the serpent, the devil, Satan. So it's all the same here. That's so interesting that John 
further explains who we're talking about here. He makes it emphatic. This is who that angel grabbed and bound him, Greek, a millennia, translated to English, a thousand years. And again, just to remind you, thousand is used as a representative number of whatever time, all time, some time. It's not It's like me saying there was a bajillion jelly beans in the cupboard. There wasn't a bajillion. It's just thousand is the representative number of of a whole bunch. And it could be ten, it could be five, it could be a thousand, it could be ten thousand, it could be a million. We don't know. Okay. So here's the first major issue that we have to confront. And it's tough when you read this. Has that old serpent been bound for a millennium? A millennia, a thousand years if you want to interpret it that way, or for the period of time that a thousand years represents, and to the full preterist, it's that generation that Jesus says the, whole, the gospel needs to be preached to the whole world, and then he says uh, uh, 20 verses later, and all of this will happen within a generation. So we won't even discuss the thousand years issue and all the stuff that goes with it. We've done it three times in our study. Could Satan have been bound fulfilling this passage? whether in the 40 years, could he be bound today the way the all-millennialist says? Is Satan bound today? And we're waiting for that end. The way Russellianism says that Satan is bound now, the gospel's going out, but he's going to be loosed at the end sometime in our future. When was Satan bound if he's been bound at all? That's the question. If he has not been bound, then we have to completely step away from the full preterist view and expect him to be bound later, which is the view of the pre-trib futurists, the LDS. That's the, that's the story my mom used to tell me as a kid. It was so vivid in my mind. Sean, what's going to happen one day is God is going to come and, and he's going to take Satan and throw him down into a big pit and he's going to on the big doors are going to shut. I remember this so vividly. He's going to take this big chain and lock him up. And he can't get out. And I just remember that so vividly and, and expecting at that time for it to be something to happen in our future. So let's try and work through some of the possibilities. And since we're on full preterism now, these are the possibilities. And I want to try to use scripture to explain things rather than just, I'm going to interpret it but I'm going to try to use scripture to explain what that means. And we've done, we've touched on this. We're going to do it one more time. Repetition is good. Um, When a person is raised to believe what they believe in Satan, his, his power, his capacity, that when our neighbor next door is angry and thrashing the house and you looked in his eyes and you see the devil, we are led to believe Satan is active and there's a warfare going on with Satan and he has so much power, and and be afraid, he's a roaring lion seeking to destroy, and it's very difficult for us to see fulfillment of this happening yet. Really, really hard. It's one of the big ones that people have when it comes to eschatology, because it goes against everything we've been taught. And it's especially true of the topic, so try to hear what the Word says. I'm going to read the Word, and you just listen to that and forget Along the way, ask yourself a few questions. Is it possible that Satan has been bound? 
And we live in an age where he's gone. Um, what does that look like? Is it possible that he has been released? And what would that look like according to scripture? That the thousand years are over, the millennium's over, and he's been released, and he does his deal. Has that, is it possible that's happened? Is it possible that he's been cast into the lake of fire, and he's done for? It's over. He played his role. And then what does that mean to us here on earth, you know, with Charles Manson and wars and molestations and all the horrible things that are going on around us? I think we're going to address those things today for your consideration. And being that we differ on most things one with another, there's a multiplicity of answers to each of those questions I just asked. So I get it. And I realize that. So just consider this. We've touched on it. Let's go to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. If you don't have your Bible and you don't want to follow along that way, that's fine. I, if I was sitting in the audience, I'd just listen. But people fought, like to follow along, and that's good too. In Genesis 3, it says, God says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Okay, so we have something happen here where one being is going to have the head crushed, and you know that if you want to kill something, you go after the head, not the tail. And the other thing is going to strike or harm or bruise a heel of something. Doesn't necessarily take life. So we have an exchange there. One life's going to be taken. In some versions, and your versions may say this, it might say, and he will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It will use bruise in both of those places. So there's a bruising of the head and the bruising of the heel, and that's what it says. And I would suggest to you strongly that you consider the Hebrew, that those two words are different in Hebrew, and bruise should not be used in both place, places. Even Young's literal translation, which I look to a lot because I like it, because it's a literal translation from the Hebrew and from the Greek, uses bruise twice probably by tradition and because bruised can be used, but it's not the best word. If you look to the Hebrew, we discover that bruise cited twice in some versions have different root meanings in their word. And, and so the meaning of one is bruise, the heel. The meaning of the other is to destroy, to crush the head. To destroy it. That's the, the better understanding of it. So the first bruise cited means to crush. The second bruise cited means to wound or bruise or harm. So who is the he in this Genesis passage? Now even the Jews say, some Jews say, this is the Messiah. And every Christian scholar says this is speaking of the coming Messiah and his relationship with Satan. So Christians know we're talking about Jesus. Many Bibles cross-reference this to Romans 16.20. So you can go to that one, and you can also put your finger in Hebrews 2.14. So let's go to Romans 16.20. There it reads, and this, remember the time stamp, time signature of this, and the God of peace will crush Satan under the feet of you soon. That's what it says in the New Testament. The God of peace will crush. That's the word. 
for the head, Satan under the feet of you soon. I don't know how to explain that. We can say, well, soon doesn't mean soon. Crush doesn't mean crush. We could say Satan doesn't mean Satan. And we could say, let's just interpret the Bible like a big wild playboy party. I don't know. I like to look at what words say and try to decide what they, what they really mean. Soon means soon to me. So the King James Version and the Young's Literal and even uh, Weymouth's Literal um, take this and translate them bruise. But the English Greek interlinear translates it, and the God of peace will crush Satan under the feet of you soon. And that's the interlinear translation, which I like. So the Greek meaning of the word bruise or crush is tied to Strong's number 4937. If you look at Strong's, look these up. See, and it means here, will the God of peace will break, will destroy, will dash to pieces Satan in the not-so-distant future. Okay. So though, thus far, the meaning of the word translated bruise in the New Testament and Old Testament is the same. Let's see if this occurs in the Hebrews 2.14 passage, where it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, talking about us. Hey, will you fix that door, Steve? Yeah. Just, I don't know, just shut it or just put that stick in it. Um, since the children have flesh and blood, that's you and I, he too, talking about Jesus, shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil. So by Christ's death he will destroy him that has the power over death, the devil. So a question, what does it mean he might destroy him at his death? In Strong's number 2672, and there's a rare book called Goodwick Concordance 2934, destroy there means to nullify, abolish, pass away, make void, do away with, put an end to. So Jesus by sharing in our humanity, by his death, destroys, nullifies, puts an end to Satan. That's what it says. The question we have to ask, did he do it? Did he do it? Now, I ask you, does soon mean soon? Does destroy mean destroy? Did he accomplish what he came to do at his death or not? Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, it says the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's what it says. Uh, two verses earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, we read, the end will come, the end that Jesus and the apostles were describing, the end will come after everything has been destroyed, meaning death. And death is the last thing, and then the end comes, all right? So the word destroy is the same meaning in Hebrews 2.14 as it is in Romans 16.20, as it is in, in the Septuagint translation of Genesis 3. It's the same destroy, all the way back to the first book of the Bible. This is what the Messiah is going to come and do. He is going to destroy Satan. 
Um, and 1 Corinthians 15, 26, and Hebrews 2, 14, death, Satan, the devil go all hand in hand along with destruction. So, did Jesus destroy Satan and death or not? Now, look at the time frame of 1 Corinthians 15, 24, when Paul writes, then the end will come. We can do this. Look at the timestamp of then the end will come by looking at 2 Timothy 2, 2.10. If you look at 2 Timothy 2.10, it says, but it has now, it has now, when now, it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, ready for this, who has destroyed death. He has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, through that good news. He's done it. So again, the meaning of destroyed is the same as all others. Now that we have seen that Jesus destroyed death at his appearing, as promised within a generation of time in Matthew and by all the apostles, destroyed death, which I believe is more than proved than the first 19 chapters of Revelation that we've studied, and by secular histories, what kind of death was destroyed? That's a big question. What kind of death was destroyed by Jesus? This is big. Was it physical death or was it um, spiritual death? Well, we're all still physically dying, aren't we? So it wasn't physical death. He did not destroy physical death. So when it talks about Christ coming and having the victory and destroying death, it's talking about spiritual death that Satan had the reign over because he got the title deed to this earth by getting Adam and Eve to fall. He took over death. And so that's why when everyone died, no one had reconciliation to God prior to Christ. He owned death. There was a spiritual death, a chasm between God and us. And Satan was the guy who owned it. When Jesus came and he overcame sin and death in the cross and resurrected, he overcame that and Satan's victory was gone. It's over. Phys spiritual death is over. It's finished. So we know, remember when Jesus walked the earth, he said, if you believe in the, that I am or you believe that I'm the son of God, you will not see death. Guess what? Many people believed he was the son of God and they died. But they only died uh, physically. He was talking always about spiritual life here when he said, says that. Okay? So the death and the victory over Spiritual death is completed by Christ at his death, cross, resurrection, life, ongoing panoply of events there. And that ended with the crushing of Satan. Um, but he's not done, as we've discovered in Revelation, that even at Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan is allowed to come back, which we discovered as we studied Revelation chapter 14. And that's when hundreds of thousands of Christians under the hand of Nero were put to death. And Revelation says because Satan knew his time was short and he was getting just going about 
through the beast and the false prophet and everybody else, Satan was like a roaring lion seeking who he could destroy. And secular history proves that is what happened, right? We remember in our study of Revelation uh, 12, 12, that it says, But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. This, in a chronological place, was when he was released back, out. The devil is out. It is not talking about when he fell from grace and he came down, because he had access to the heavens prior to that. He was in the heavens. Remember Job? He, he was among the sons of men. He was able to have counsel with God. And, and God said, do this, but don't do that. And he was still in the heavens according to Revelation. But at Revelation 12, this is when Revelation says, and now he's getting his time his, his, his from, from 67 AD to about 70 AD, the, the 36 months, the three and a half years, from 67 to about 70, that's when his unleashment came. And so Revelation says, woe to the earth now and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. We know that the earth and the sea represent uh, Israel and Gentile nations. He's come down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. So he was railing to try to do his deal. This was written to them then by John. Again, what does his time is short mean? And, and we get an actual number. We get an actual figure of time. Time, time, time and a half. It's 36 months. It's three and a half years. That's how long it was. Um, so could it mean that Satan knew his time was running out? Or did it mean in a futuristic sense that short was 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 years later? And that he was, he's been roaring about and doing his deal on earth, time is short, is relative in scripture, doesn't mean short, and Satan has been doing the same thing since uh, ancient days. I don't think so. I trust the word of God. I trust what it says. An amillennialist, a russellennialist, a pre-tribulationalist, a dispensationalist, even a post-dispensationalist, it, short doesn't mean short. Short does not mean short. And so when they read the book of Revelation to the seven churches and they read the time is short, you're under great scrutiny, but his time is short. Hang on. They said short doesn't mean short. We're going to endure this until we die. That, I don't trust that. I trust that the revelation given to the seven churches was written to them. And it was a revelation to them. And it was Jesus saying, I couldn't tell you the time or day before, but I can tell you now. And here it is in this revelation given by my father to me. And here it is through John. The time is short. He's going to have 36 months. Hang on. So here in Revelation 20, um, verse 10, we have the devil or Satan or the ancient serpent or the dragon, all the names mean the same person, being thrown into the lake of fire, burning sulfur. So in addition, at both verse 14, both death and Hades are thrown into the same place called the lake of fire. Death, remember death and Hades, spiritual death and Hades. Satan here in, uh, in verse uh, 10, thrown into the lake of fire. And that is the end. That's the end of them. So when people talk about Hades and going to the lake of fire and they talk about Satan's reign, 
I look at scripture and I say contextually, none of those worries are, are present with us. I don't believe that we have to worry about them at all. That was for that age, that generation, everything else, and it's done. Well, people can't handle that. They want to believe Satan is still here. They want to believe that he's the one who's causing us to do evil. They want to believe that he's going to be locked up. They want to believe he's going to be released again. They want to believe hell is a place where everyone goes. That it's a, so they, just, they don't see it that way. But I can't help but see it this other way up to this point so far. So for those who believe that Satan is still around, a couple questions. Jesus did or didn't have the victory, as Scripture says. The gospel did or didn't go to the whole world, as Paul says. The end didn't come within the generation, as Jesus promised it would, and Satan's and all of these roles that we're reading about weren't fulfilled or they were. If the battle is still going on, and Satan is stealing souls from Christ's hands, so to speak, and taking them with him to hell then where's the victory? And, and it, there's still a trade-off going on. Jesus is in the, in the ring with Satan, and Satan is throwing a combination, and Jesus is doing an MMA move, and the battle continues on. Or he had the victory. As Scripture clearly says, he has won. If we understand it, we enter into a, a different way of our Christian faith. And... We should, in my estimation, and we should walk by that Christian faith, not in fear, but in hope and in love and in faith and in learning and growing close to God, et cetera, et cetera, but not these fears that, that were present with the New uh, Testament narrative. How can someone that has been dashed to pieces put to an end still exist today, according to 2 Timothy 2.10? Remember, that was a past tense. Actually, it was present tense and indicative. I can't remember which one it was, but what it says is this has happened. How can that happen? And yet we're still watching and waiting for it to happen again. If the devil still exists today, what's his purpose? And, and, and what does he do? Does he roam the earth with nothing to do because he's powerless, because Jesus has had the victory? See, there's people who, they want to cling to the idea that he's still going to, he hasn't been taken care of yet, so he's been rendered powerless by Jesus, but he's still able to tempt. I taught that. I wasn't ready to embrace full preterist views, so I taught, well, Satan is still roaming about because we haven't come to the end. He's tempting, and he's doing his purpose in tempting, but he doesn't have any power with it. He's no teeth. He's like a lion with no claws or teeth. He can't do anything but breathe on you. So, or does he still have power? And most Christians today believe he still has power. Therefore, Jesus doesn't have all the power, as 1 Corinthians 15 says he has. And has, everything hasn't been placed in his hands, not under his feet, sitting next to the throne of God. No. Satan, Jesus is still somewhat powerless, or has less power. Answer carefully here, because if you create some sort of justification that says something like, well, it always starts with well, well... The victory has been had, but the war isn't over yet. The battle was won, but we're still in the war. And, you know, whatever it is, you, I suggest you are maintaining arguments because you can't let it go. And I would humbly say to anyone who doubts that Jesus has had the total victory over Satan, they just aren't accepting what Scripture clearly says he has done. Done. 
past, present, past, present, and for the future. In the book, The Cross and the Paralysia, page 9, Max King says it this way. The primary aim of Christ's messianic reign, that's his earthly life, was the resurrection of the dead by means of the age-abiding consummation defeat of sin and death. Um, this statement is supported by the context of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. So remembering that his victory was over spiritual death of all things, the implications are very far-reaching. And I'm not alone in this. This isn't McCraney making stuff up. Max King, that book was written a long time ago. There are all sorts of people who understand these things are problems that have to be dealt with and aren't answered by uh, uh, dispensationalism. So... There is something else presented in Scripture that needs to be revisited. If or since, stay with me on this, well, just ask yourself, are we still under the law? Do we still have the law that we live our lives by? I'll ask you that first. If, I would say, or since, the law has passed away and Death, Satan, and Hades have been cast into the lake of fire, all in the same period of 70 AD at the consummation of the age wrapping up. Where does that leave sin? If the law, which was nailed to Christ's cross, by the way, if the law has been taken care of, what happens then to sin? In Romans 6.23, Paul says clearly, here you go, the wages of sin is death. Okay, now, Scripture says that Jesus has had the victory over death. We know that the wages of sin may be speaking of physical death there. Maybe it's speaking of uh, spiritual death, but Jesus has had the victory over the latter. So the wages of sin is death. If sin still exists, what is the result since death has been destroyed? If sin still exists, what's the result if death has been destroyed? Again, start with the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, which, speaking prophetically, says this of Jesus' work. Daniel is speaking of Jesus coming, and he says this, listen, 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city, we know what city that is, it's not Salt Lake, Ready? To finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Prophetic. Speaking of Jesus, what does it mean, that line, to put an end to sin? In Strong's number 8552, the Hebrew word is tamen, or tamen, which means to completely eliminate sin. To put an end to sin is why he came. Some say that it's talking about animal sacrifices. Cannot be, uh, because it talks about that in verse 27. 
And we notice that it is using the same phrase, we'll put an end to sacrifices and offerings, but this phrase has a different uh, Hebrew word and meaning. That word is sabbat, and it means to cease or rest from, not completely destroy. Two different things. So if someone tries to say contextually, it's talking about animals. That's not. When it says to put it into sin, it's not. It's talking about finishing, killing, stopping, obliterating sin versus putting a rest to animal sacrifice. Josephus tells us that this happened on February 67 AD, Works of Josephus, Volume 1, page 430. In Hebrews 9:26, we read, But now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by sacrifice of himself. <laughs> It's so unbelievable, the message of the good news. That, that is the good news. That is, it's done, finished in him. The good news is not, you're still sinning. You're going to hell for Satan to poke you. All those things, that's done in him. Now, turn to 1 John 3, 4 through 9, and let's put into context some things. So I'm going to quote the, the, the whole text. It's a few verses. Listen to what John says. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away or remove our sins. That's why he appeared. And in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. That's an impossibility. He did, that's not John who said that. I added that. <laughs> no one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. The phrase appeared to destroy the devil's work means, according to Strong's 3090, to demolish, to loosen its obligation of the law or institution to make void, to do away with. And from this meeting, it's talking about law and sin. You want to have a sin? You got to have a law. Take away the law, there is no sin. Get that in your head and you understand how there is no sin. Because the law was nailed to his cross. The Greek-English uh, interlinear puts it like this. For this he was manifested the Son of God in order that he might undo the works of the devil. Undo the works of the devil. Now look at Romans 7, 7 through 11. Paul says, what should we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. 
For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law didn't say, don't covet. The law says, don't do something. It shows me my sin because I do what it says don't do. That's a paraphrase from me again, not Paul. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Apart from law, sin is dead. No law, no sin. Simple as that. Once, Paul says, I was alive apart from the law. I believe he's talking about after his Christian conversion. He was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. He put another law back up in his mind, in his heart, in front of him. And what happened? Sin sprang to life. He says, and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brings death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. What does the phrase mean, apart from the law, sin is dead? What does it mean? Apart from the law, sin is dead. Now, our context of this conversation is, we're talking about Satan being gone. We're talking about Satan no more. And we're approaching this through, well, is the law around? Because if the law is around and the wages of sin is death, and death has been obliterated, then Satan has no purpose, is what I'm trying to get to. Romans 5, 12 through 14, and then verse 20 gives us further insight. Listen closely to this passage. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, good old Adam, sin entered the world, Adam and Eve, and death through sin... And in this way, death came to all men because all have sinned. For before the law was given, sin was in the world, but sin did not take into account for, or not charge to one's account when there was no law. That's a parenthetical reference. You don't have to worry about it. I'll describe it to you later if you want. Nevertheless, because he's talking about the period before uh, Noah. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to Moses. This is pre-law even over those who did not sin by breaking the command as Adam did, who was a pattern of one to come. Now go to verse 20. The law was added so that the trespass, the sin, might increase. Laws were added so that the sin would increase, is what it says. Now jump to Romans 4.15. Paul says, because the law brings wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Hallelujah. Hallelujah is right, Patrick. Amen. Where there's no law, there is no sin. If we are dead to the law, we're dead to sin. It's really hard for people. They want to be alive to laws. They want to live to laws. Because they want to feel themselves as sin sinful, I guess. They don't want to understand what Jesus actually did. They want to pretend that they still are under the law and guilty so that Satan is constantly threatening them to take their souls to hell when in fact it's all done. It's been 
completed by Christ fully, full victory. Are we living under the law? What does where there is no law, there is no transgression mean? What is the law? Look at the law that Paul talks about is describing the rules and regulations that God gave to Moses. And there's three types. We've talked about them. The law includes the Ten Commandments, for instance. Uh, the law includes prophecies about Christ. The law in, uh, uh, includes civil governance of how to operate a community. It includes dietary things. It includes dress codes. It includes other commands written in stone that say you must or else you are a sinner. So when we impose any law, and that includes tithing, which is an, un, under my craw, or any other law, we produce the propensity in the human flesh to sin. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD wiped it all out. That was the end of it all. The law is no more. We are not even under the Ten Commandments, not even close to the Ten Commandments. If you want to live by the Ten Commandments, you are cutting yourself so short of the kind of life you could have in Christ Jesus by His Spirit, where you learn by the Spirit to not even look upon a woman with lust in your heart, let alone go and have an affair with one. That's the, that's the old law. The new law of love, which abides in our heart because God is in us, teaches us a much, much better way. The old only serves to make you and I and others sinners. So, wait a minute, you'll say. What about the thou shalt nots? Well, what does James say? And what does Paul say in Galatians? Well, you know the passage. The thou shalt nots, James says, whosoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking the whole thing. The law is like pregnancy. You don't have the whole law and all the commands, and you can break one point and still be a law keeper. You break one point, you're guilty of the whole thing, and it's heavy, and it will crush you. So we don't live by the law. You're not a little bit pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You're either a law keeper or you're not. If you're living by the law, you're keeping sin alive in your life, is how it's put. So for this reason, Christ at his death and, and uh, the, the, the ordinances of the law were nailed to his cross, quoting uh, Paul. And for this reason, Paul says, we are dead to it. Dead to it. I don't say those words. Paul says those words. You are dead to the law. Why? Because by the law, his words, is the knowledge of sin. So you're either dead to it, and there is no sin, or you're alive to the law, and there's sin. Which way is it in Christ Jesus? You pick. Because the law was given through Moses, listen. But the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace and truth. The law, Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ our Lord. Such good news. Now let me take all that I just said and bring it back to our subject. The law was only a shadow of what was to come. The whole book of Hebrews explains this by comparing the old covenant way with the new. 
Again, I'm going to cite Max King in his book, The Cross and the Parousa of Christ, page uh, 644, for those of you who take notes, and 645, quote, the fact that Paul is dealing with the 70 AD uh, consummation of the Jewish age is brought out clearly by the manner in which he expresses death's ultimate defeat in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. Dead to the law, no sting of death. Why? Spiritual death doesn't occur anymore. Okay? Here Paul is extremely conscious Conscience of death's defeat when he says the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. I've got an old man, my dad, 86, I just visited him. This guy, I have learned more about being like Jesus from him and his walk and a few others of you who remind me of my old man, actually. But I've learned more from him and what it means to be like Jesus than I have from any sermon or preaching. I learn more from the Word, but my old man, the guy, has lived a sacrificial life for others. And if I was to believe that there was a sting of death coming, and I don't mean to say I get to rewrite the rules because I love my dad, but if I believe that you could take a guy who was born in East L.A., taken out of the gangs, marries my mom, raises six kids, my mom never works outside the home and they didn't have money. And he sacrifices for their welfare. He, he teaches me principles. He's there at all my activities to show love and he does it with the other kids. And, he beca- and he's a loving, forgiving, unconditional loving man that when he dies, the sting of death remains and Satan is there to throw him in hell to burn forever and ever and ever. I don't understand that God. I don't understand him from scripture. I can't even see him in scripture that way. And so that's what we're talking about. Now, if Satan is still in operation, then I have to believe that this is, and this is why the message is so liberating. It's not that I've concocted the message. I discovered the message and then found others have found it before me, hundreds of years before me and brought it to life. And so I've read their books and stuff and I've seen what they have to say. And I changed because there's no way that you're going to take some little Hindu guy who's a good dad and loves his family and does everything he can to follow the spirit that's given him, goes to Satan's clutches, the sting of death is upon him because the law was taken. If the law is taken, they're not sinful. Jesus has accomplished what he came to do. That's good news. That's news that we can share with people. Now, does it take away people's responsibility to then act and live by the Spirit and grow and become sons and daughters of God? Absolutely not. There's a big difference between God, Son, saving everybody and removing the law and the sting of death and those who are sons and daughters. That is a night and day comparison. But nevertheless, there's no way in the context of Scripture that that guy is still doing what he did with the nation of Israel when they had the law and we don't. They had the law. We don't have the law. That's the other big thing. Why some Gentile in Oklahoma is thinking that the law was given to him when it never ever touched him? They were, they were given to the children of Israel, who he is not. 
And that's why the news is so good for the whole world, is that he came and did this. So remember, Paul is conscious that death's defeat hinges upon sin's defeat. And that the death of sin is tied to the annulment of age-related law, because in the law is the strength of sin. That's why he spends so much time clearing this up for us. If sin, death, and the law are, in Paul's treatment of salvation history, interlocking realities, how can these powers be defeated in Christ's death, but still need to be defeated later too? That doesn't make any sense. How does scripture say it has already happened? Speak in 2 Timothy about it already occurring and us still waiting for it to occur again. Impossible. Now, listen. If we're already freed from the strength of sin, which is the law, and from the sting of death, which is sin, where is death's power? It has none. I'm going to repeat it. If you're already free from the strength of sin, which is in the law, and from the sting of death, which is sin, if you're freed from those, then where is death's power? There is none. It's gone. Death is dead. Death is dead. The sorrow of this mortal by, yes, it continues in the flesh. For Paul, death is abolished when the state of sin and therefore the law were abolished. Therefore, the state of sin, the law, and consequently death are abolished when the old covenant age was consummated, giving place to the new covenant age of life and righteousness. Uh, What I believe abides now and will continue to abide until perhaps there's there's not any reason for the human race to exist. I don't understand the end, if there's an end. But I see no reason why God would not continue to have an earth that replenishes itself of its minerals and its rocks and its resources. And, and we're, we, you know, we're in it and we're doing it. And if there's believers on this earth, and there are, we're not outnumbered yet. I don't see why God is going to come and destroy us. That doesn't make any, any sense to me. And there's not a scripture that says this earth is going to be destroyed. In fact, we have verses that say the opposite. And I know you know that. One other point, maybe two, I've made before. When the law is present, there needs to be a prosecutor of the law, for the law. Someone to say, "Ah, Sabbath day, guilty. Guess what Ha-Satan's name really is to the Hebrews? The accuser. That's what his job was. Under the law, he was the prosecutor. He goes before God, our attention... Judge, I have something to say. Go ahead. Under the law, that guy. God says, Job, you can have Job. Just don't do this or that. Okay. I'm going to come back and accuse him. That's his job is to accuse. I suggest that it was the very presence and existence of the law amidst the children of Israel that allowed for that falling being called the accuser to thrive in the heavens and be among men as a roaring lion seeking to destroy them. But if the law was fulfilled in and through the life of God's only Son, and was nailed to the cross, meaning it was put to death, then with the death of the law came the death of the prosecutor of the law. That only makes sense. He has no reason. 
And doesn't that support scripture rather than defy it? I suggest it does. You check it. So when we speak of the end of Satan, that concept that troubles people so much, I would suggest they are troubled because they have, for whatever reason, assigned far too much power to his person, far too much authority to his person. And we still love elements of the law in our lives, and we need someone to blame perhaps too. Any of those things are going to cause us to still need to cling to the idea of a prosecutor. Satan, remember, and we've talked about this, is not the creator of evil. Satan was a good angel according to the way we teach it. Satan fell because of pride according to the way we teach it. And he's a fallen angel that was created good, right? So Satan was influenced by something outside of himself because he was created good. We don't know what that was. I call it the darkness. That the darkness, the absence of God, somehow got into the angel Satan, not Lucifer, that's a misnomer, and he fell and that darkness led. But that darkness is not Satan. Satan was influenced by the darkness. So he didn't create it. He's not the consummate evil. He was just a puppet in the hands for opposition and darkness. And his purpose was to accuse under the dispensation of law, which was nailed to the cross of Christ. And his being cast into the lake of fire at the destruction of the law is as natural as somebody else's heart stopping and them falling into the grave. I mean, Satan going to the lake of fire after, it was just, that's just what happens to him. You're just, that's it, you're done. So understanding these principles, I think, assists us in understanding how the millennium could have begun when Jesus either had his victory over sin and death at the cross, which is the beginning of the millennium to some, to some, remember, and uh, includes what we have just read in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then it explains how he was kept chained during that period of the apostolic church where, um, where he was not allowed to um, uh, have an effective power over Christ and his apostles. All that being said, there's a fatal flaw in what I just said. There's a fatal flaw. Do you know what it is? The fatal flaw is Satan in at least 12 verses in the New Testament from Acts to Titus, is spoken of as being active. Now, the, the full preterist view is, listen, this was the millennium. This was a time when Satan was not going to have power. He's going to be chained, and, and, and then he's going to come out at the end of it. But the full preterist says, no, this was the time when the gospel was allowed under the authority of Christ and the apostles to spread. So how do you have both of those? He, if he's showing up and the apostles are speaking of him as having power, how could that possibly be? And there maybe there is a different meaning when we read Satan was bound. That when we read, like I did when I was a kid, a key and a lock, and the way my mom described it, like huge anchor chain was put on the gates. We think of it as millennium when we look at the pictures of the Jehovah's Witnesses of during the millennium, the little child having his hand on the top of a cobra and a lion and everybody's in love. It may, may not be that that's what John meant when he said, and this angel bound Satan for a period of time called the millennium. Let me explain. 
perhaps the best way to understand was the spiritual powers of Satan were absolutely mitigated the minute Jesus took over his reign. He's baptized by John. The Holy Spirit comes and anoints him. He enters into the wilderness where he's tempted with three things. He passes that with flying colors, and it says Satan departed for him from a season. From Adam to Jesus, Satan had his way. God allowed it. But at the advent of the second Adam coming and walking among men, being baptized and entering into his ministry, Satan was from that point bound. He was bound by what? By the presence, power of the words of the, the word of God. He was bound. And anytime Jesus spoke, Satan, who had reign over this earth all before, was, he couldn't do anything. He was just getting kicked out right and left. And it appears that the binding of Satan is first seen when he tried to an attempt anointed Jesus, and it didn't work. He gave it his all. Jesus res resisted him, citing the word of God, by the way, in each circumstance. And Satan departed, left him for a reason. From that time forward, whenever Jesus was around doing something with someone sick, afflicted, demented, full of devils, whatever it was, he just spoke it and it was done. Satan had no, no power at all. Um, and no power against his light. This was the case with the apostles, too that Satan could not inflict anything upon people when the apostles came with the power of Christ in their lives. And so that is perhaps what John means when he sees the angel come and bind Satan, is that it's describing that period of time when Jesus and the apostles and the bride church was being established and Satan's power was mitigated. He wasn't done away with. But he certainly didn't have reign over what Jesus and the apostles could do. If that's the case, the binding spoken here in Revelation 20, verses two, 1, 2, and 3, is speaking of his power um, being bound, and that's, a reasonable, that's reasonable to me now. When I read that, I can say, I think that's a reasonable assessment. It's not far-reaching. It's the truth. So maybe it could mean that. So... The way I see it is the binding is not to believe that Satan was not present, but that he was powerless in the face of the second Adam. In the face of the first Adam, he had victory after victory, but in the face of the second, none. The idea then is once that period of time that Jesus was introduced to the world and overcame the darkness by his light, Satan was bound, and only at the end of that time period, referred to as a thousand years, was he loosed and allowed to come down like it says in Revelations 12, 12, and reign because he knew his time was short with blood and horror for those 36 months. During this time of his unleashing, as I said, hundreds of thousands of Christians were put to death uh, with relentless ferocity. And um, I know there are many who are believing that's coming, but that was a time in history as evidenced by secular writers, Josephus and Cassius Dio and others, that support that happening, that we can then assign these passages up through verse 3 to being fulfillment. If we are living, I'm almost done, in the glorious results of the promises fulfilled in the first century by the first century Christian church, then the law, sin, death, 
And yes, especially even the accuser Satan, the devil, no longer exists. If I was just to get up here and say those words to you, people would try to have me kicked off preaching altogether. But if you take it in context, that is what the good news is. And that is, I'm using scripture to support every word I said. And it's not out of context. So this is how I see it, and I've yet, be disappointed, I've yet to be disappointed by this reason and logic, looking at Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. So, final thing, people are left asking, so why is there then evil in the world today? Can you really suggest that the evil in the world today is, is not from Satan? Absolutely. And, and the answer is simple, and you know I believe this if you've listened any long time. Just because Satan was the accuser of men under the law and the tempter before does not mean we aren't capable of concocting great rebellion against God in our own natures. And, um, and we can do evil on our own accord. We, we look to blame him and therefore give him the reason. But remember James again, what he said, describing our capacity for sin. Notice when I read this passage, when he talks about when we're enticed and when we sin, he doesn't mention Satan at all. He says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, ready, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. By his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. And all you need to do is look to the Garden of Eden, and it will settle the case once and for all. Eve was perfect. She had no sin in her. There was no fall. And by her own will and desire, she chose to go against God. And Adam did too, right thereafter. There hadn't been a fall. She hadn't eaten the fruit, and she made the decision to do evil on her own, without Satan even playing a part in the fallen nature. Sure, he may have been tempting, but she was pure. She was holy. She was made good. And in that being made in God's image, she chose to go against him, which is what, all what we're doing now. So I don't see the need to have a Satan for this world to be evil and ugly. And I don't think it's that big of a deal when you really examine what the scripture has to say about it. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into a bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more. We're going to talk more about that next week. Till the thousand years should be fulfilled, till the fullness of that time should be fulfilled. I would reinterpret that. And after that, he will be loosed a little season. And we'll talk about that little season, too, when we come together then. Questions? Comments? From Vanna? The Wendy White. Hi, Sean. Oh, wow. Praise the Lord. Um, this is Patrick, by the way. <laughs> All right, Patrick. Um, I don't want to take too much time. I'm going to be as short as I can because I have a lot. I'm going to brief it down as best I can. Okay, I'm sitting. Go ahead. Ah. <laughs> Okay, if I'm taking too long, let me know. Okay. Um, if the Bible was written for that time and age, how do we apply it today? Because everything, everything 
uh, is this too loud? Okay, everything was written for them. It's all fulfilled. And how does it apply to us? Spiritually. Okay, that makes sense. Next one. Sorry, I have it written out. Again, if I'm taking too long. Um, is Satan and Lucifer the same being? You made a short comment. Lucifer is a, a mistake of How, Christians uh, calling Lucifer yeah. Satan. That's a mistake. And it comes about through a whole... How do you see Isaiah? Deal. How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, son yeah. of the morning? It wasn't applied to Lucifer, the son of the morning then. It wasn't applied to the demon. Uh, you get A to Z... There's the section on Satan and the name Lucifer and read it. I can't recite all of it. But it goes through and it explains how that's one of the reasons how we can prove Mormonism false. Uh -huh. is because they use that term as if that's really his name and it really was not. And we can prove that through like they do in the temple some salt. Yeah. And then um, uh, last thing, I get, well, a couple. I, I don't know. I could talk to you personally about the other two. But uh, if Jesus has the full victory um, okay scratch that he does have the full victory but um, if Jesus is completely God there's only one God and scratch the Trinity because I don't believe that and I don't think talking to you I don't know if you believe Trinity but um, how is he our advocate according to Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession, always liveth to make intercession for them. So if he's God, but there's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, how is he pleading our cause before the Father? I think that's talking about the man Christ who overcame his flesh and by obedience suffered all things, and he learned and grew in wisdom and stature, and he is always our uh, connection to yeah. the living God, that the the man, word, God with us, man. I think that's what that's speaking of. Oh, awesome! And then I'll talk to you later about other things. The personal problems? No, but okay. Just because of time. Thank you, Patrick. Good questions, by the way. Hey, Sean. Dave. Dave. Hey, I wanted to, first off, I just wanted to say something uh, with us coming here today. You talk uh, like your approach is the best approach to Christianity. Yes, on the face of the earth. Yes. And uh, on the one hand, that's a, a big, almost ridiculous statement to say. <laughs> How could you say that? <laughs> but on the other hand, I just wanted to say, as I do this question, this forum right here, being allowed to ask questions of a sermon that's just been given, is something that I think is better here than anywhere else. And I've gone to almost all the churches. So awesome. I, I love that part. Thank you, Dave. That part of campus is that a, part. I bear an everlasting witness of it. <laughs> <laughs> but here we go. So I have, I have, uh, you, you kind of addressed your, your fatal flaw, yeah. which is why I could never embrace full preterism because we see, you know, when, uh, Peter says, and I ask, why has Satan filled your heart? And there's over and over places where Satan is clearly, active, which I commend you, every view has holes that can't, including my own, I think. But here's the passage I wanted you to deal with with your talk about sin. Yeah. Um, I think I'd see how you would, but I just wanted to, so in 1 John 1, 8, it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Yeah. So certainly you would not say you're sinless, right? I think what you're saying is 
you're seen as without sin because you're covered in the blood of Jesus and you've put your full trust in him. Is, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. It's, a, it's a, just identity. Who are you? Am I my flesh or am I that renewed uh, person through Christ? Okay. I am that new person in Christ. Oh, okay. And then I, I, I was talking to someone else who had been a preterist and then, and then kind of moved away from it. And, and I was asking why. This was a year or two ago. And he said, you know, I, I realized that rather than taking 65 books and having that help me interpret one book, I took one book and tried to have it make sense of the 65 other books. Mm. Do, you, do you see that as happening with some preterists? And they don't do the backdrop. I notice you, you quote a lot of other books to back up your, you know. Yeah, I don't know. You know, the thing is, Dave, uh, is I am a preterist by default. I just say that because I don't really know what a full preterist believes. I hear them say things. I know I don't believe what right. they're saying. Right. But it's the closest thing to my understanding of end times. Okay. So I don't know really what the full... I know Don Preston, he talks above my head. I can't understand a thing the guy says sometimes. Yeah, he says some things that I don't think is the same. No, as, no, as no. Yeah. Wouldn't be. Yeah. yeah. Okay, thanks. Hey, thank you. Great questions from both the Dave and the Patrick. Anybody else? Okay. I will stand again, and let's pray. Lord, we uh, love you. Gosh, so grateful for minds that are thinking and seeking, uh, because to know you is life eternal. To know your Son is life eternal. That's what we want, no, to know you. And uh, that knowledge comes by the Spirit. The information helps, and the information we, we churn through, but uh, I, I thank God for people who are tuning in and watching, and for people here in the audience. That, that are seeking and understanding and have opinions and views. And that's everybody here. They're showing up to, to something that's not the most entertaining or comfortable, but we're seeking, all of us, to understand you better and through your word. So we pray for ourselves that we will grow in the spirit. We will grow in faith. We will grow in love. That is the goal, I think, Lord, and we pray for this. We pray for Robert and the surgery for lymphoma, cancer on Monday. Uh, so much cancer that we hear about in the ministry, in, in the uh, body here in, in Utah. We pray for Gracie, our young friend, continued recovery from her cancer. We pray for Diana, healing and peace and renewed strength. And uh, to fight this, just getting old and having your body break down before you want it to. We pray that she'll be strengthened by your spirit. We pray for Annette and Mike and David, recovery from surgeries and their cancer for Diane, kidney stones and bleeding, Joan, broken leg in a car accident for Paul, Patrick's brother, that he'll come to know God and have a relationship with Jesus and for Taylor and his panic attacks. We pray for Lisa, continued healing. She's had good news about her battle with cancer. It's a, it's a ebb and flow, as people have told me, and we pr pray that it will continue to ebb and ebb and ebb to the point of disappearing. And we pray for all those whose names I haven't mentioned here that have sorrow and despair upon their hearts, who are sad or lonely or depressed, who are struggling with making ends meet, who are having difficulty with life. And, uh, and maybe they are facing things we don't even understand or know. We pray for them. We pray for each other that we can lift each other up in the spirit. And we pray that you will move in our lives and that you will heal our bodies, and you'll heal our spirits, and you'll heal, heal our emotions and minds, and move us forward as children of faith. So we, we leave now, Lord. We don't see each other till next uh, week, uh, you willing. And so we pray that we'll leave, and we'll be better Christians. 
We'll be Christ to our neighbors. We'll be Christ to our enemies uh, as you lead. And uh, we just pray for this now in Jesus' name. Amen.